and welcome to the Technicast, the PhD podcasting community open to all. My name is Polly Hember and together with Julien Clam, we invite postgraduate researchers to join us to share their work. Keeping with this month's theme of futures, where we've thought about utopia and the commons with Robin van den Acker, Tamara de Groot and Raphael Cabo, and also how mindfulness can help us focus on the present moment to support the future with Alan Kilner-Johnson and Emma Brzezinski. Today we're joined by Diane Bauer. Diane is a writer, artist and technique PhD researcher at the University of Westminster and her work explores the discrepancy between time at an extra human scale and the linear persistence of temporality. Whilst the future is inherently unknowable, I can give you an idea at least of what the next 35 minutes listening to this episode will be like. What follows is an interview between Diane and the writer and theoretician Suhail Malik, who is the co-director of the MFA Fine Art at Goldsmiths University, where he also holds a readership in critical studies. This conversation looks at our relationship to an unknown future and how that conditions our present moment. But first, it was my pleasure to talk to Diane a little bit more about her own doctoral research. Diane, thanks so much for joining us on the Technicast. We are absolutely delighted to have you here today, where we're continuing our theme this month of futures, which was inspired by the Techni Congress, which happened recently, which is all about the notion of back to the future. This idea that the back to the future seems to me to resonate so strongly to your own research from what I've heard of it so far, and also this amazing conversation that you had with Sahail. So thinking about speculative futures and the complications of how we can go about planning for the unknown really. But before we listen to that conversation, I was wondering first whether you could tell me a bit more about how you look at time within your own research and maybe about how you first became interested in issues of temporality. Oh gosh, I mean, I've been interested in the idea of time for a long time, as it were. Um, I think for a number of years of trying to find funding to, to do like this succinct pilot model. I say succinct, I don't know how succinct it actually is, but maybe expansive body of research that, you know, the PhD is, is allowing me to do. I mean, I think one of the first things that I was most interested in around it is the sort of strange counterintuitive things that time does when you start looking at it at, at scales outside of human experience. So, you know, extremities of scale, either the very small or the very large, or, you know, around things like black holes and, you know, extre- extreme exotic events in the universe that, that do really strange things to time that is so different to how we, you know, understand this very everyday quotidian experiential thing that everybody seems to have an understanding of what time is. I mean, one of the difficulties is that, like, when you say you're writing about time, it's like, everybody has written about time so trying to narrow down like what what is it in time that you're really interested in becomes in a way like as much of the project as anything else I mean I think this for me it really is time outside of experience and, and the and I suppose the difference between that and 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 our sort of persistent linear experience of time I've been thinking about that for a, a number of years and that sort of got me to thinking about time in relationship to the Anthropocene, which is, I mean, I think this is one of the challenges I have in terms of narrowing is like trying to see where these things fit together, really. Because, you know, you've got deep time, which is also time outside of experience, but it's it's within the realm of, I suppose, planetary definition. It's still defined by the planet and, you know, diurnal rhythms and years and things like this, um, which is still, you know, again, within sort of human experience, unlike the extremities of, of, of time that I was originally interested in. So it's it's sort of looking at these things together, I guess. That sounds just so fascinating and so 
complex and so like you said quite separate from the way that we all fall into well I at least fall into is just thinking about the everyday quite a lot and it's the idea of scale which I think you kind of touch on and in the conversation really allowed me to think about these things differently and kind of come out of that and think about the way that humans relate to time and the planet and the relationship to the, to the Anthropocene as well. It's really, really fascinating. We're going to launch straight into that conversation shortly, which looks at all of those issues that you outlined just there, and also ones of finance and, and risk and the climate crisis and collapse, insurance and humans' relationship to the world and also to speculative futures. Before we do that, can I also ask just how you first came across Sahel's work on is the, that article, The Speculative Time Complex, and how the ideas within in that article feature in your own research and whether this conversation has maybe changed the way that you're thinking about that? Well, I've known his work for a long time. We, we know each other personally, mm. but that article in particular was sort of a lead article in a series of articles, I think, in this magazine work. I was also, there was also an interview with a collaborative called Laboria Cubonics that I'm also part of that wrote a text called uh, Xenofeminism, Politics for Alienation. So that was the context of that original article of the speculative time complex. I think one of the places where Suhail and I overlap is this idea of time outside of human experience seems to be the, and I'm not quite sure how to put it, I guess that the way we sort of think about the context that we're now living in, we need a way to think about time that is more expansive than just the experiential. I mean, he's, he's written this article called uh, The Ontology of Finance. It came out, I don't know, maybe six years ago, something like this, where he, he started to work on all of this. I think he may have even mentioned it in the conversation. I don't remember. So that's sort of where I think his, his interest in time started. Now, my, my relationship to it is less around finance, but I think finance ends up being an interesting example and, and sort of is, is useful for me to think about in relationship to, again, examples of time uh, outside of the sort of linear well I suppose what we what humans have the capacity to to experience I mean sort of high frequency training for example is well beyond the um the experience of the human but it's it very much dictates even things like how cities are formed you know like how like where things are built and this sort of thing so I mean I think that's where his work on time is, is quite useful for my own my own research and I think I think he's also coming to think about time in relationship to the Anthropocene I think we're starting to converge a bit around around that So I was reading a text, well, a conversation that you had with Armin Avanasian in 2016, and I just want to read a little, uh, one of the first things you said in this conversation, and then sort of unpick some of the ideas. You say, the main reason for the speculative reorganization of time is the complexity and scale of social organization today. If the leading conditions of complex societies are systems, infrastructures, and networks rather than individual human agents, human experience loses its primacy, as do the semantics and politics based on it. Correspondingly, if the present has been the primary category of human experience, thanks to biological sentience, this basis for understanding of time now loses its priority in favor of what we could call a time complex. One theoretical ramification of the deprioritization of the present is that it is no longer necessary to explain the movement of the past and the future on the basis of the present. We are instead in a situation where human experience is only part of, or even subordinated to, more complex formations constructed historically and with a view to what can be obtained in the future. So, 
I think broadly what I'm interested in that is, is this idea of time outside of human experience. Maybe we'll start if you could give us some examples of this. Like I, I know you've spoken about it in relationship to finance, and I think what I would like to get to is to see if we can think about it, if there's a way to tie this time outside of experience that you speak about here to something like deep time, which is also outside of experience yet defined by human parameters. Mm. So I think just may, maybe it's worth mentioning how I got to mm, how sure. I got to this argument in a way, which was through a long, long, mostly incomprehensible article on finance. And I think what came through in that was the way in which derivative structures and financial operations, which are basically bets on forms of credit, rely upon a speculation on what the future price of an asset is going to be. And then in finance, you bet against whether it actually reaches that price or not and make various trades of the contract that you can set up against the speculation it will be that future price. And I think this is something that's true for all pricing mechanisms, but maybe gets exposed in a very explicit way through speculative finance, all that's happening all the way when you're going shopping and like you know, usual use of money. What struck me about that was the way in which the structural condition for derivatives very explicitly, but for all pricing mechanisms, is what the expected future earnings from an object, from an asset will be. I mean, mortgages are the quick way to think about this. So if you take a mortgage out on a property worth 100,000 local currency units, it's worth taking out mortgage not just because you want to live in the house, because the idea is that or in the property, the property will be worth much more than 100,000 local currency units in a few years' time. So even if you're paying interest on top of the capital of the mortgage, that total cost is going to be less than the resale value of the property. All the kind of human consideration of living in a property aside. But we also now know with insurance, you've got, which you can take out to different lengths. You can take out insurance for the, next, for the activity next week. You can take out insurance for the year ahead. If you have a mortgage, you have like mortgage insurances, building insurances, which are annually renewed. But we also know that now because of climate breakdown, Insurance companies are having to rethink their timescales and also stopping insuring certain properties that were previously insurable, but also then having to think about what else they can insure to guarantee the income they were going to get from those previously insurable properties that are no longer insurable. And those timelines for the insurance companies are much longer than like the 30 years of an individual purchase. If, you know, if, you, if you're going to get building insurance for 30 years or mortgage insurance for 30 years, that's fine for you, but the insurance company's got to think about that over several lifetimes because that's the kind of economic model it's got to run into. So insurance is a form of speculative finance, because it's also betting that things won't happen and things will happen, and then the total amount of income you get from the premiums this year is going to be enough to pay off with other investments in other parts of the financial economy or financial speculation. It would be enough to pay off the write-offs that are going to happen. But with climate breakdown, it's not known what those write-offs are going to be, and they're becoming more and more precarious and larger and larger. So reinsurance companies, I think, are thinking about this quite a lot and doing a lot of very explicit work about factoring in. So uh, insurance companies are themselves insured and reinsurance companies are the companies that insure insurance companies. But you know, they're the kind of backstop before government. So basically the reinsurance company can't pay the insurance company. Mm -hmm. Then the state has to sort of pull out and it does version of 2008 credit crisis sort of bailing out the economy. The other version of this, in terms of you mentioned deep time, is nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. How you take care of nuclear waste, because the half-life of the most potent or like most radioactive nuclear waste is half the duration of the planet. So how do you take care of a problem that's like longer than, longer than humans have been around as a biological being <laughs> that's mm -hmm. being produced now to make sure that 
it's safe enough. I mean, if you're going to be anthropocentric, for as long as there will be humans, if you're going to be a bit more concerned than that, which is probably recommended, it's got to last probably longer than humans are going to be around. I mean, the, the, it's got to be safely mm-hmm. contained longer than humans are going to be around, and it's got to factor in the sort of geology of the future geology of the planet. Now, that's hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years, and you've got to factor that into your planning now. But there are so many contingencies. So what you're actually dealing with is a bunch of risks and unknowns. The risk is a kind of a future unknown. Mm-hmm. It's different to just epistemological unknowns, which is like, I've not read enough, I don't know, I've not read enough Marx or Hegel or whatever authority I'm supposed to kind of pay attention to. So you know, if I do a little bit more reading, I'll kind of know a bit more about Hegel. But I think it's important to separate unknowns because of your subjective ignorance mm-hmm. against objective unknowns. And I think the unknowns, like risks, are objective unknowns rather than other stuff in the world I just don't know about, which you can, you know, a bit more research on Wikipedia, or you can go out to visit whatever people's stories you don't yet know. So objective unknowns, you mean like things that are not knowable because it's the future? future. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we have these two conditions, one where the, the future is actually forming the present in this financial model. But you also have this very unknowable future. It's so the same thing. How is it the same thing? Well, in, in, you don't know what, for example, you don't know what the house price is going to be. So people are extremely anxious about downturns and house mm. prices and going underwater and stuff like this, which is what happened in the credit crisis. So the time that's vary. With the credit crisis, people expected you know, infinitely increasing house prices from like 2004, 2002 maybe, something like this, till 2007. And then they went underwater and there was a big big crisis and but the house price has gone back up again so those are quite short time scales the things around nuclear waste climate breakdown reinsurance insurance all this kind of stuff a much longer timeline but there's a nesting of timelines but just to get back to the point around the objective unknowns are something that no one can know so it's not it's not like with the rumsfeld things of known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns it's just rumsfeld saying that we don't know what the iraqis have got they know what they've got. We just don't know what they've got. Yeah. So you get into kind of like spy game and mm-hmm. you know uh, use it as an excuse to do the horrible things that they did. But with the future unknowns, even the Iraqis don't know. Like nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows because it just hasn't happened yet. So if you think about nuclear waste storage, there's an estimate and a calculation about what the geology of an area is going to be. But within a thousand years, the geology could change quite markedly because of pressures happening elsewhere but they just a whole bunch of contingencies that you can't factor into your model at this point mm-hmm. it's like nobody knows at this point so it's it's very different to saying we don't know but so they know so we've got to get into a mm-hmm. brinksmanship mm-hmm. game or go to war in the Rumsfeld case or we don't know how another people or another culture think about things but we can go and find out you can't find that stuff out Whereas that kind of unknown, I would say, is subjective unknown. Mm-hmm. And that's different than objective unknown, which is like, actually, we just don't know what the climate's going to be in. But my, my point, and I think this is where it's maybe to get to the politics of some of these claims. So if you're, if you're a modernist, <laughs> like a progressive modernist, you know, you have an idea of what the future's going to be, and then you kind of put plans in place and make social organisation and do all the things you need to do to realise that future. But that's obviously a projection based on current fantasies of what a good life is going to be, and you get other people trying to agree to that and make it happen. But actually the future is unknown. So what, for the purpose of this conversation, we call the objective future is actually the future. But that's also the basis for actions that need to be taken in the present. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with the nuclear waste? What do you do with insurance? What do you do with climate breakdown, which is the big... Mm-hmm. The big problem, I mean, it's, it's the planetary question and it's the one that you're asking about. What, what are the interactions or what's the relation between temporality and the kind of timescales of deep time or 
time and breakdown. One, I think it's about subjective and objective measures of time. I mean, that's very obvious because temporality is obviously a subjective measure, a subjective experience of time. And the other, the physics time is objective time. Physics has a particular model of time. It's not necessarily what time is. But I think it's then also the epistemological issue about the unknown of temporality, subjective experience of time. Some of them can be met because you can find things out. You can read a bit more Hegel or you can go and speak to other people or you can wait within the lifetime of human experience to find out how much your house is worth in five years' time. But some of them won't be known. It just won't be known. Climate breakdown again. Sure. So Benjamin Bratton's thing is we only know about climate breakdown because we've got planetary computation that can show us the planet as a show historical models of the planet through mm-hmm. sense data. Mm-hmm. But it's not just sense data on its own. It's how you algorithmize that data to produce a picture of the planet and the changing climate. But on that basis, you can extrapolate forwards. Mm-hmm. And you can use historical models to look at future models, but you can also look at the breakdowns of those models if you put in different parameters. But this is exactly where the things are breaking now, though, right? I mean, because the yes. I mean, the thing about like the past is 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 no longer a reliable basis yeah. on which to understand the future. Yeah. And that that seems like because of climate breakdown and like a fundamental shift in how we. Well, I mean, I I guess this is partly my question: is like, is that a fundamental shift in how we understand time, or just like how we situate ourselves on the planet, or or both? Uh, those are two very big questions. <laughs> <laughs> Think. I think basically if you take this unknown future, it's kind of like there's different scientific models of models in physics, some of which are like block time models in which there is no time, you just move through personal experience, through like a set of coordinates which is spatio-temporal and it's all prefixed and the rest of it, I think it's a garbage argument. There's the Newtonian mechanistic view of time, which mm-hmm. kind of gets taken up by relativity theory, in which sort of time is a background framework, which is immobile, nothing happens to it, we just kind of move through it, mm-hmm. and relativity theory kind of messes that up by saying it's about your frame of reference in which you're moving. But also, I, I think somewhere, if you, one, I commit to an objective notion of time. The interesting thing about the future is not what's known of it, but like what's unknown of it. And so for me, it's definitional that the future is unknown. And that can be fantastic, optimistic, because we're not committed to history in the past. So you can think of justice and emancipation because you don't know what the future is going to be. So there's a prospect of it being something else than current repressions. But it's also terrifying because climate breakdown, yeah. <laughs> for example. <laughs> But that's just risk. I mean, risk is just you don't know which direction it's going to go and somehow you've got to kind of make your way through that field. So the notion of the speculative time complex is that what the actions that are taking place in the present are predicated upon this unknown future. And the unknown future is the primary criteria and quite the basis. It's the basis for action in the present. So just to clarify, it's not so much that the actual future constructs the present as it is the projections that one makes about the future, either one or society makes about a future, has on the present. It's certainly not that the future currently acts on the present, because that's sort of retro-causation. Yeah. And I don't think it's even, like, the projections you have on the future, I think that's kind of progressive modernism, or mm-hmm. like the plan. Right. right. So you say, this, we want this to happen, in order to make that future real, you, then you have to put these things in place and you have other like material efficient causes. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of progressivist or that kind of notion of a planned future is one way of using the future for actions in the present. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the real problem is how the unknown future gets 
factored into the actions that you need to, that need to take place now. So how do you differentiate this? So you've, you've got like the modernist plan uh, or, or the modernist, modernist yeah. idea of the future where you can sort of make a plan, a top-down plan, and sort of plan for the future. But that in a way is still making bets on what the future will be. It's, it's betting that the future looks enough like the present that you could plan something. It, it looks enough like your fantasy of what things should be like, yeah. And Not necessarily the present. My point is more that you're you're still making bets on the future. Is that and how? I guess how would that differentiate from this idea of hedging on the future? Uh, one, I think, with the it's kind of an enlightenment model. It's like anthropogenic future making or world making, where you you have the capacity to make a future that you can project that you have an idea mm-hmm. of. It's your idea of the future. Secondly, it's in human capacity or it's in like the capacity of a society or like a bunch of factors mm-hmm. to do it. And thirdly, it's got content. Like the future is contentful. You know what it looks like or what it should look like. Mm-hmm. Whereas the unknown future, it's not necessarily in your capacity because you actually don't know mm-hmm. what, what it's going to be. You don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So you don't, have an, you don't have a fantasy or an image of it. And thirdly, you don't know what resources you need to address it just because you don't know what you need to map out for. So I think this is something I've come to a bit more recently, so after, after this piece from five years ago. I think the progressivist future, or the kind of the, the planable future, I think it's a subset of the kind of speculative time complex, the speculative future, because mm-hmm. it's the version in which there is a future that's different to the present, but we know what it is and we can head towards it and we can build towards it. So you rely upon the difference of the future from the present and the past, but it's still contentful, whereas the fully speculative future is one you just don't know. But you still need to act on that basis in the present. It's a bit like in speculative finance. You put you put forward a speculation of what the price of the asset is going to be in like a year. You think it could be that price, but you're also aware that it might not be that price. And then what you do with the contract which says it will be that price is you trade it according to which way the prices are actually going. So what speculative finance does is use the planned future, or rather it uses the fact that actually the future can go in lots of different directions. I mean, it's quite narrow for finance because it's just what prices are doing on the market, which is a limited version. But as a, as a kind of model, you use the kind of the range of uh, unknowns into the future to bet against the kind of way to make money off the proposed price. Prices are actually moving in lots of different directions. And then you can see what the differential is between the real price at the future moment in time against the actual price, against mm-hmm. the the proposed price, mm-hmm. and then that's kind of what you, you sell or buy. So, and I think what happens with the kind of the planned future in mm-hmm. a kind of political social space is you say, like, this is the model that we have. It's not clear to me how the unknown, actually occurring unknown future gets used to either change the model, so you, you kind of need some responsive feedback mechanism, or like what would be the equivalent of profit in that, or selling or buying the kind of contract against what the plan would be. Certainly in, in high modernism, like 20th century, kind of up to Bretton Woods sort of period, you just stuck with a plan mm-hmm. and you try to accommodate or kind of sideline contingencies or like do whatever you can. But I think the, the fundamental issue for me is that the planned future is still contentful. You have an image of what the future is going to look like. Whereas I think with respective time complex, you make plans a bit like nuclear waste. You want it to be safe, but you just don't know. So you've got to kind of put in protections insurances, securities, but those are limited. You're still dealing with an area that you just can't see. But that's got to be part of your plan at the minute. Could you say that like part of the plan has to be a constant remaking of the plan? Yes, you can do that. I think that's very hard to do as policy. But it's kind of how you end up having to live anyway. I mean, like, I'll, I'll maybe on a personal level, and perhaps on a larger scale as well, I haven't really thought it out, but 
that you do have to constantly make yeah, this. Yeah, and that's neoliberalism as well. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that's what Hayek says about markets. Markets are very good at just dealing with contingencies as they arise. I mean, because the, the thing only... I wanted to ask you that I was, that I was going to, you sort of started to go into it, but in a way, I feel like it's the thing that we haven't really figured out, is like, if you have this model in finance, like, how can that be translated to something that isn't sort of necessarily profit-driven? And I start thinking it out, and you and I realize, okay, that is just neoliberalism. So then I, I feel even more sort of locked into this model, I guess. It's sort of, Which model? Well, I don't know. I, I've grown up under neoliberalism to the point where it's so naturalized, I, I sort of can't think outside of it or something. I don't think it's just your problem. I think it's yeah, a kind no, of I like, wasn't taking it that it's a, it's a kind of leftist crisis. Yeah. Right? So how, how do you have like what the left used to be about, which is like plannings and better futures? Mm-hmm. If the conditions for future making or planning or like building a better world and so on have to concede to the uncertainties of... You can only have like modernist leftism if you have the Holocene. Like you can't do it in the Aspicene because you don't know what the you don't know what where you're going to be in five hundred years time. But it can't be it can't be left that we're you know it's it's neoliberalism from now on, right? I mean that's no, like, that's no. a terrible conclusion. Yes. <laughs> should we finish that? No, <laughs> it's a terrible conclusion. So we should conclude. <laughs> we conclude that there's only terrible. No, it, no. Part of the the really large question is okay. If you have climate breakdown, and it's not just climate. I mean, let's call it the Anthropocene because there's plastics in the ocean, uh, soil depletion. There's lots of different factors in like, human impact on the planet. It's just bad news. And there's so many versions of it. There's so many versions of it, and they've all got to be dealt with simultaneously. That's that's the fundamental problem, which is like, how do you construct a politics, or how do you construct action now on the basis of a projected future, which you don't know? I think, for me, the worry is that the reaction tends to be we must keep where we are, that we must stop climate warming, remove plastic from the oceans, all of which is great and understandable and should be endorsed and blah, blah, blah. But in a way, it's conservative mm-hmm. and reactive, which is just like... Well, we, and not adequate. Well, because... Because so much of the problem is already cooked in. I yeah. Mean, it, because, I mean, the, like, even if everything sort of went carbon neutral now, there would still be global heating that's already sort of cooked into the system. As far as the current models go. But, you know, I think the work on carbon extraction from mm-hmm. the atmosphere, mm-hmm. like, recognises that problem. So we, we need to take out the on switch, basically. Mm-hmm. The similar thing needs to be turned turned off. Mm-hmm. That's carbon extraction. Even if we stopped doing everything we're doing now, there's the kind of cooked-in model. And even if you did carbon extraction, on current models, I think it takes like a couple of decades for that to recuperate. But also the timescale of the politics changes. So instead of being a politics of like lifetime or like two or three generations, or if you're a 20th century totalitarian, like a thousand-year rule, a thousand years is nothing in this model. You've got to factor in forms of action in the present. Somehow you can't do it in the basis of knowledge. You can't factor in what 3,000 years from now looks like, given all of the things that are changing, all the parameters that are changing, and all the contributions, and just, like, who knows what people are going to do over the next 10 years, never mind the next 100 years, that could change it. You kind of have to build in the, un- not just uncertainties, but the objective unknowns into the models of action in the present, at the same time that there have to be models of action in the present. That doesn't look like old school. We know what the future is going to look like, and we build towards it. But I don't think it can, it can't also be or either be, let's just keep things as they are, because mm-hmm. things are terrible at the minute, because of neoliberalism, capital, and racial extraction, the rest of it. So in, in a way, I think the commitment is that we still need a kind of future-facing politics, but the future ain't what it used to be. It's kind yeah, of, it's, yeah. a, it's not modernist future. It's a future which is more, you need to formalize the future through the fact that it can't be known, rather than a known image of the future.
Yeah, so I mean, so more unknowable and also much more extended. What? What's extended? The future. Longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have to think about it in those terms rather than, as you say, like the th a thousand years when thinking about sort of planetary changes is, is like a blip. It's yeah. Like also, I don't think the future is more unknowable. I think it's always been that unknowable. Mm -hmm. It's just constitutive unknowable, but you just have to accommodate the unknowability of the future within the current moment. Right. And that's also where the present can't be the basis, the present, the past can't be the basis for action in the present. Basically, if you just accept the future is unknowable, you can't do anything. So you end up with a kind of, I think this is what the right does, you end up with either a quietist position, which is, we don't know what the future is going to be, so, meh. Yeah. Like, we just kind of concede, and so you end up with a kind of climate denialism. Or you end up with, like, all you can do is short-term profits, and then use this ideology of the invisible hand to say that short-term profits like, will produce social goods somehow, which is, I think history tells us might be a mistaken view because of climate breakdown. So I think it's a theoretical problem rather than a political problem. I mean, in the first instance is factoring in unknowability without abandoning plans and future-facing actions. And commitments to futures. And commitments to futures. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, I think, but I think insurance does that in a way, which is about for-profit, which is... Insurance can't work unless the future is unknown. There's no need for insurance if you know sure. what's going to happen. Sure. Right? So for insurance says, oh, actually, we, with the unknowability of the future, we can do quite a lot and we can do quite well for ourselves in the present. It's entirely financial. And it only works in the Holocene so far. So I think, I think there are models which are usually profit. So maybe there's something like the, like the aims of socialism with the methodology of finance and insurance? Yes. <laughs> That's pretty much it. But just come back to the subjective mm -hmm. temporality thing mm -hmm. against the objective deep time thing. You know, I think one of the problems with anti-modernist leftism is that it turns to experience and mm -hmm. history, narratives, you know, all of which are fundamental and how people understand themselves. But that's very much about what, in your terms, of temporality. It's like, it's not actually subjective, but culturalist, culturalist subjective notions of what the world is and what the world could be. But it's not, I don't think it's adequate to dealing with this like unknown bit the present or temporality in your term like subjective side mm -hmm. of time can't be a basis for thinking about the, the problems with Anthropocene uh, and the kind of breakdowns of our historical models because basically the I mean one way just very, very quick way the politics of Anthropocene several hundreds of thousands of years long and we have to think about that over the next 10 years because if you don't do it by 2030, it's going to be really, really hard to do it afterwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, to do corrective measures. Um, but also several hundreds of thousands of years is longer than any human civilization to date. So the kind of the narrative models or the calculative models are intrinsically different to those that have been historically developed to now. And they're also the future projection of we don't know where we're going, rather than the backward projection of we know where we've come from. If not, in fact, for hundreds of thousands of years, we can kind of give an origin story somewhere. It's like an anti-origin. It's an anti-origin. Wait, how, how is it an anti-origin story? Well, because it's, it's, it's towards the future. Right, okay. But it's also, there's no content to what the future's <laughs> okay. going to be. So it's like du doubly anti. It's yeah. twice over anti-origin. I don't think, I don't think like presentism, as I would call it, or, I mean, it's not me, it's um, Francois Roustan. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think that the subjective experience of time is the adequate basis for dealing with these conditions, but equally, it's kind of where humans act to start, so you can't just abandon it. And I think in the quote that you read out, there's a, it's, it's, it's a bit like temporality isn't just time structure, it's also meaning structure. The issue is also how, if you take on the subjective time complex notion as the basis for action in the present, what does it do to the constructability of a meaningful future? 
Oh, see, I thought you were going to go a different way. I thought it was going to be more like, how do you actually persuade enough people that this is worth committing to, I suppose? Because that also seems important. I think a lot of political judgment ends up being based on subjective yeah. experience. And, and if we recognize that that is not adequate to constructing futures, you run into this problem of like, how do you actually convince people to commit to these long futures when it's very often contrary to their sort of subjective experience of, of the world or of time? There's two answers to that initially. One is you need to formulate a politics which is not about the rewards being for the person listening to the politics. So it's like the rewards aren't for you or your children or anybody you know. Mm -hmm. The rewards are for something else. I don't that's certainly not a neoliberal form of politics. I don't even think it's a socialist form of politics where the rewards of the people who are involved in the socialism. And secondly, I think the negative version is that it's, I don't think you will commit people to this form of politics by advocating this. I think it will happen because things will happen based on long-term problems. There's going to be more temperature spikes. There's going to be wet point crises, right. wet, wet bulb crises, where humidity and temperatures spike so people can't cool down. Mm -hmm. Happening more and more in the world. This is a, it's a Kim Stanley Robinson, yeah. Ministry of the Future moment where like that happens a lot. So there'll be negative conditions. conditions will enforce it. Yeah, historical and current yeah. conditions which make intolerable lives nonetheless livable. That will stop. Mm -hmm. Like intolerable mm -hmm. lives will be utterly intolerable, and then there'll be demand. So in a way, the, the demand will be driven for negative reasons or like for because it's become real on that optimistic note i think i might say thank you very much i, mean, <laughs> I would say my pleasure but this yeah. Is... yeah no i i, I realize maybe we should have tried to stop on a more optimistic note but yeah. it's it is 2021 so optimism is maybe a little thin on the ground anyway thank you very much thank you we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode Thank you so much to Diane and to Sahel for this really thought-provoking conversation. We would love it if you wanted to share this episode with anyone who you think might be interested. And you can also subscribe, like and review Technicast on iTunes so more people can listen to the amazing work currently being done by PhD researchers. We've just put out a new call for participants for our September theme, which invites reflections around the idea of practice. So if you would like to join us on the podcast, do check out our Twitter, which is at Technicast, where you'll be able to see the latest theme callouts, or you can always email technicaster at gmail.com to speak more. We'll be back in August speaking to two Techni PhD students about music, listening and sound, and we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks again to all of our incredible guests who have given their time to work with us this month on our theme of futures. To Robin, Tamara, Raphael, Alan, Emma, and to Diane, and to Sahail. Thanks also to Techni for their ongoing support of this podcast and thanks to you for listening. Take care.